And welcome to the Food Coma Podcast. Uh, today's guest is chef, restaurateur, TV personality, food activist, apron model, and author of the American Burger Revival, Samuel Monser. Are we going to go with Sammy Monser or Samuel or Sam? How do you? I go by Sammy. Yeah, Sammy. That's what I. That's what I figured. But I like to ask. You know. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's what my mom calls me, so it's what everyone should call me. Yeah, my mom calls me Joey, but I don't necessarily prefer everybody to call me that. I Especially hear you. her in front of people, but it's fine. <laughs> I hear you. It's um, totally a thing. So we were just discussing the merits of uh, shift drinks, if you will, drinking a lot of whiskey when you're in the restaurant business. And I was saying how uh, I, I preach the gospel of Rumpelman sometimes. It's extra trashy. I mean, have you been? I mean, you know, have you been there? I've drank Rumpelmans. Yeah, it's usually like yeah. cold and. I, I don't think I've drank Rumpelman since Boston. Um, yeah, maybe it's an East Coast thing. I think it's an age and a vibe and a place. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, if it's it's nice and cold, like I like it not cold because the colder it gets, the more you notice how like syrupy the texture is. Yeah, if it's room temp, you can get it goes down right away. But there's like this with Rumpelmans. There's a face that and you could you could have drank it a thousand times, but there's a face you make every time. That's just this like recoiling in horror after you finish it, and then this warm glow <laughs> starts, and you're like, yeah. "Uh oh, it's gonna be another one of those days." <laughs> but I think so. That, speaking of Boston, yeah, uh, that's where drink. we met back in 2013. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were at JM Curly, and you were the the king of burgers back then. I used to come in and order a burger with a beef patty, a veggie patty, and a fried egg, yeah, you and it was would. the greatest thing ever. Those veggie patties were deep fried. That's why they were so Dude, good. They were awesome. <laughs> how did you uh, How did you think of that? Well, because you know, it's funny. Um, it makes a lot of sense if you hear it like this. Uh, we made the veg, uh, veggie patties in house, and in order for them to keep their form, we would have to press them out and then freeze them on individual layers. And so yep. once we got once we got that, we were like, because the veggie patty is very mushy. Like our binding was, I would, uh, eggs, um, caramelized, pureed yams, uh, and oat flour. But we would just take oats and blitz it in the Robocus so it still had some texture. And then from there, it was like a blend of grains. We would cook off quinoa, farro, um, pearl barley, and fucking something else I can't remember and throw some black beans in it. So it was really hearty and it was great, but it would, it would be like mush if it wasn't frozen. So then it was yeah. just like, uh, why don't we just throw this thing in the fucking fryer from the frozen state and you'd throw it in the fryer for three minutes and it'd get crispy on the outside, but it'd be creamy in the middle and chewy. And it was great. And we like, there wouldn't be a moment in time that passed <laughs> Where we wouldn't laugh every time we cooked one. We'd be like these motherfucking vegetarians thinking they're being all healthy. <laughs> it's it's funny because like, I mean, it's totally true that there's a reason that like the Boca burger, like the grocery store veggie burgers, taste better than a lot of the the handcrafted ones, if you will, because of that texture. It's it is mushy, and then you don't feel like you're eating a burger. But if you get the texture down. 
because the flavor, I mean, you're, and you guys seasoned it really well also. But yeah, I mean, that's the way to do it. Like, is you got to kind of take one onto the grocery store veggie burger, you know, handbook. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and with the beef patty and the fried egg, now we're, you know, yeah, at all. that was, man, I wish I could go back in time and put that on the menu as the filthy Joey. But can... <laughs> it would be, it would be, you know what? You could definitely at your restaurant, Prue and Proper, you could certainly feature the filthy Joey if you wanted to still. Yeah, I could. Know. I could. <laughs> I think that the filthy Joey is a pop up, though. It. <laughs> There's a lot of that's a lot of things to unpack with that statement, but uh, yeah, it, it definitely is the filthy Joey. <laughs> <laughs> now you're originally from uh, Chapel Hill, right? Yeah, the Chapel Hill area. I, yeah. Now, yeah, how I did you end up in, in Boston? Area. Uh, well, I went to culinary school in New York, mm-hmm. um, and then I started traveling around the country after we graduated, and then you know I did that for about 18 months and uh, kind of went everywhere. And the last place I went was Boston and it was like January 1st, 2008. And I went to go stay with some friends. It's funny enough. I'd been traveling for so long that I had stayed with these people in Vegas when they were working in hotels in Vegas, my friends from culinary school, I stayed with them for a month. And then a year later they had moved to Boston and I was like, and I was kind of like making my way back up the coast of the East coast. And I was like, Hey, I've never been to Boston. Can I stay with you guys again? And they were like, fuck yeah, Sammy. And they were living in Jeffrey's point. And like, as soon as I got off the plane, they, we stopped by Santarpio's and we just stood yeah. in the kitchen and got a pie. And Dude, we those, it those, those Italian sausages over the coals. Oh and... yeah. <laughs> the barbecue. Uh, <laughs> that place is amazing. It is. We were sitting at the bar one night and they were slamming and we asked if we could get some lamb tips and the bartender cooks off the fucking charcoal grill that's behind the bar. And he was like, we're far too busy for barbecue. He was like <laughs> pissed that we even asked, you know, cause you're like, he's basically yeah. like, how can I take your order, make your fucking drink, serve you and run a charcoal grill motherfucker. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> you see all these pins I'm wearing? I just I've been here for forty years. Yeah, I like how you order pizza there. It's like you know sausage red or yeah clam if you, white. If you or if you ask for a menu, they walk up to you right and they're <laughs> like, "Do you need menus?" Because there's like six things on the menu. So if you yeah. say yeah, you instantly get dog shit service because they know you're a fucking tourist. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's it's those places are a dying breed. Uh, I love that it's, place so much, and I actually. The reason why I brought it up was because that was my first culinary impression of Boston. And it was these early on impressions that I had that made me fall in love with the city and say, hey, to my friends, hey, guys, could I stay on your couch for like more than a week or two, maybe a month or two while I try to get a job and get my own place because I really want to move here. And, uh, you know, they were like really supportive of me. And, you know, that's how I ended up in Boston. And I just stayed because of the charm and the amazing food. You know, if I never lived in Boston, I don't think I'd be as good of a chef as I am today because the food in Boston is just so fucking good. Yeah. You should have kept going and got up to me in Portland, Maine. But you stopped at Boston. I I love Portland, (laughs) Maine, too. And, you know, we would go we would go up there with some of our buddies who were maniacs and um you know, actually, I don't know if you know Mike Smith. He was the chef to yeah, cuisine over. Okay, so we, we went worked to together at Hugo's. Together. Awesome. We went to CIA together. We're same class. 
graduated, mm-hmm. another really good old friend of mine. And um, so he took us up to Portland uh, and, and gave us the full-blown experience. I actually, <laughs> since all we're doing is just reminiscing, you know yeah. Duck Fat? <laughs> I, I, do, I do know Duck Fat, yes. <laughs> so we went to Duck Fat, uh, this was probably like 10 years ago, maybe, no, maybe like seven or eight years ago. We went to Duck Fat for lunch when we were in Portland for one of my buddies' bachelor parties. And so we got there by like two and we were already blacked out drunk. Like we drove up yeah. to Portland, parked our cars at Mikey's house, got a, got a cab into town. And then we were drinking at some dive bar that has like pickled eggs behind the bar, you know. That's like, at uh, San, uh, Sangelo's. Yeah, so we're drinking there, getting blasted at like 10 in the morning. And so then we have this massive lunch at Duck Fat where we ordered the whole menu. There was like eight of us, and we're all culinary kids. So uh, anyway, we were up in full. There's this hill across the street from Duck Fat that's like a grassy knoll. We all just laid out and passed out and just took a nap <laughs> in the middle of Portland. And I remember waking up in the middle of this nap on my hands and knees, puking my fucking brains out. Oh, dude. <laughs> And the day just kept going. Yeah, I'm puking up duck fat. Uh, that that spread on top of that. That's, that's was, amazing. That, it was tough. It was tough. I think it's good to... Uh, maybe now we should give the listeners some context. So Sammy lives in uh, Los Angeles now. He's actually... You've lived there since, what, 2014? Yes, yes. Or did you move that? Yeah, in 14. And owns two restaurants, uh, Prue and Proper, as well as the... Uh, um, South City Fried Chicken. The South City Fried Chicken, exactly. Yeah, and but although currently you're part of the uh, Apoco Lockdown Kitchen. Yeah, we've been doing these videos, um, uh, you know, in lieu of the pandemic, in lieu of uh, quarantine, um, seeing that people just trying to do something, have fun. My fiance and I, my fiance Cassidy, runs our beverage program. She's fabulous at it. And uh, we decided that what we, you know, we had this really organic, active following at the restaurants. And uh, I mean, it proves been open for five years. And so not a really long time, but long enough to have like a following and a fan base and mm-hmm. people that like your regulars are like your family. And so we thought it would be cool to, to put some recipes for drinks and food out there in a fun, kitschy video format um, because we've got the time and people were really uh, receptive to the recipes. And we started to smarten up. We actually did a season and we didn't really figure it out until the last couple episodes. We figured out how to really knock it out of the park with her drinks, make make it something that's attainable and accessible and delicious. And then for me, how to scale down my recipes to be things you would actually want to cook and be able to cook, like not too complicated. The biggest success I had was with my ribs. People are still like, fuck dude, this ribs recipe is crazy. But I was like, let me just show you how to make a barbecue sauce in ribs, right? And like, if you wanna fucking hook up sides or do anything else, like that's up to you. But like once, once I realized that a singular focus, simple craveable thing would be what people could really pick up on, we, we hit it. We hit it hard uh, with with our I think our our success in terms of trying to accomplish what the whole point was was like 
we're not just trying to make videos for the fuck of it. We want people to be able to actually get something out of it and be able to engage in it and, and uh, provide our food and drink to the world still through a different lens rather than coming to the restaurant and dining. You know, how do you right. recreate this food in your own house you know, for free? And who doesn't love meatballs? You know, I love <laughs> your meatball, your meatball preparation is amazing. Uh, uh, the food, if anybody's familiar with their Instagram, the, the food that you post is pretty insane. You've been doing it for a really long time. Um, some of the things, the, the uh, fried chicken livers smothered in serrano pepper jelly with Thai basil, mint and lime comes to mind. Uh, even some kind of deep dive stuff back in the day, your uh, deep dish uh, biscuit dough meat meat lovers brunch pizza with a soft yeah. egg. Yeah, that was definitely a work of Hardcore. art, I believe. Yeah, <laughs> I do. Yeah. You know, um, we actually had a, you know, it's funny because there's just so much good food out there that you can get lost in the shuffle. And, and in Boston, when I would do crazy shit, like people really fucking like it mattered. You know what I mean? It like people cared. And I don't mean it doesn't in LA, but LA is very big. So things, it's easy to get lost in the shuffle. Like LA magazine did an entire expose on our deep dish biscuit dough pizzas. They were like, really? deep dish biscuit dough pizzas are a thing. And here's where you can get them. And then they like, we had a whole menu of them and you know, we had like seven different pies and then we'd have one of the week and they like just did a spotlight on every single one and it was dope. You know what I mean? But like eventually I took them all off the menu and just boiled it down to one because it never really took off like to have. I can't help myself. Sometimes my menu's too big because I want to do it all. But like, what do the people really want, you know? And so, uh, you know, this goes off of like menu mix and sale items and where does it, where does it provide the specific niche to the menu lineup based off everything else. And that's how food I think ends up actually becoming toned down. Like the longer you're in the business and the smarter you want to be, instead of going like, fuck it, this is what I want to put out there, you go, well, you know what though? The mushroom and burrata pizza actually adds something interesting to the menu. It's vegetarian. It's, we're able to cross utilize our fresh burrata, which is like highly perishable. And these mushrooms are insane. And like, I love a good mushroom pizza. So you talk yourself into oh, it, yeah. you know what I mean? And it's not that it's not delicious, but it's not that fucking meat lovers brunch pizza with the fried egg on top. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's got yeah. like the chorizo and the house smoked on Dewey it's and the insane, North dude. country bacon ends and fucking pepperoni, you know, and it's like that fucking pizza that you just wish you could have. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a, it's a thing. Actually, <laughs> the, the, I want, I want to talk about your, so I know that now, and we're going to get into it, like fried chicken is almost has become almost your specialty now. It, it almost appears, whereas you were like the Burger King before. Um, I see a lot of more of the Southern influence. I mean, your your parents owned a restaurant uh, growing up. Yeah, and the, you know you said they did a lot of like. I think you put it. The only frills were on the toothpicks uh, yeah. in the restaurant. Just like yeah. really good comfort soul food. Absolutely. So what was the? I guess what was the thought process behind doing the Burger Cookbook? To start, how many burgers were actually in 
the American Burger Revival? So American Burger Revival, what I think is really cool about what Richard Chetty, my co-author, uh, Boston Burger blog, um, and, and myself did per se, it's a choose your own adventure type of book. Early on, first chapter is talking about cattle cuts, uh, handling of meat, grinding, blending, um, and cooking, whether it's in a cast iron or it's over, you know, hardwood charcoal, everything about getting the patty down. And then from the, and with options for you to choose from, while very clearly stating that American Burger Revival is about burgers and burgers are made from beef. That, and that if you wanted a salmon burger or a turkey burger bullshit situation, you can get the <laughs> fuck, fuck off so to speak <laughs> you can a fuck off yeah and b <laughs> because that's not a burger it's a sandwich and that's okay that's delicious sandwich but a burger <laughs> is a fucking beef patty and that was kind of our take we wanted to be fun and cheeky and not trying to offend anybody but we were like look this yeah. is our claim and there's yeah. plenty to go on about because like most of the time what lacks with a great burger is a great fucking burger like the beef's yeah. poor quality, or it's overseas, and you know you've had it. You order a burger medium rare at a place that's supposed to have a good burger, and 45 minutes yeah. later you get a well-done burger, and you're not going to fucking send it back because oh. you don't feel like, cool, so now I know they don't know how to hit a temp, but I don't want to yeah. wait another hour for this shit. So oh, I'm just going to eat it. too, yeah, so it's even worse. Exactly. And you don't say anything, so they never find out that they fucking suck at cooking burgers. <laughs> and and so, you know, so the next chapter is seasoning, and we get into internal versus external. And then from there, it's like how to bake bread. And then it's like a whole chapter on cheese, and then a whole chapter on condiments and then on pickling and fermenting. And then I think my favorite chapter is called junk drawer because it's all these odd job fucking Looney tune things that make sense with a burger book that didn't fit in any other chapter that are like fig oh, jam. No, that would have been in condiments, but I didn't fucking, oh, okay, I don't yeah, think yeah. we did that. No, it was like hophead curly fries or like how to make a good sarsaparilla or there's a chicken uh, fried sous vide pork belly recipe if you wanted to like throw a fat slab of fried pork belly instead of bacon on your burger um yeah. just fun stuff that our publisher was like that doesn't make sense there or like why would that be <laughs> we're like we're not getting rid of these recipes they'll go in a chapter called junk tour you know what i mean and it's they'll fun. be they'll be the filthy joey don't you get yeah yeah you... yeah Absolutely. mark my words um so do you think that um I mean, I'm sure that the answer is yes when it's like, is it worth it to grind your own burgers? Uh, but I mean, if, if you, you know, if you're just not somebody who's generally going to do that, are you missing out a lot, do you think? I, I think it's really hard in the today's state of food production. It's really hard to go and buy ground meat and really know what you're getting and where it's coming from and what else was done to it. A lot of times, especially because of the FDA and the USDA, a lot of times when you buy those little one pound packs of ground meat, even mm -hmm. if it's like bison or it's grass fed or whatever, um, 
it can contain other uh, foreign ingredients to help stabilize the meat. Um, and it doesn't even need to list it. And me knowing that, it makes it really hard to like buy that. Now, yeah. at the restaurant, we buy, we purchase meat from a family owned, you know, midsize uh, meat supplier and they'll grind our blend for us and they grind it morning of like 4 a.m. They're grinding for what we order. So we'll get our, our ground meat in probably three times a week to keep it fresh and to know that we're getting our blend. But at home, I think it's like cheaper, easier, more delicious and more fun to just buy the to buy the meat and grind it yourself. I mean, if you've got a yeah. KitchenAid and you've KitchenAid, got to right? find yeah. your attachment, because I'm not talking about doing volume here. I'm talking about yeah. grinding up like a pound of meat, two pounds of meat, and you just run it through your grinder once and maybe twice if you're trying to do something special or mix a couple of cuts. But there's nothing in my opinion that beats like, if you want to just talk about a simple, perfect burger, you go to the grocery store, any grocery store, and you get that chuck roast. Okay. It's got beautiful marbling. It is the classic American identity of what you know ground hamburg is <laughs> and you just grind it once and it's a fucking great patty it's juicy and it's fatty but it's not greasy everybody agrees that ground chuck is the best now if you do it fresh you really are stepping it up uh, and doing what i what i've coined uh from the grinder to the grill i made that up this summer mm -hmm. because i can't stop man i mean i've got a patent pending on that on that trademark i got a book coming out called grinder to grill really no yes. i'm making all of this shit up dude oh you are yeah. <laughs> i'm like i'll buy it <laughs> but 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 on that sense of the burger the burger book came about because of what we were doing at jm curly's we had a really rad kind of gastro pub vibe but 50 percent of our menu matrix sales or not menu matrix our menu matrix like the burger was like 5% of our menu matrix, but 50% of our overall sales were a burger. Yep. So people loved our burgers. And we got like they were ridiculous. best burger, Boston and very cool sources that I saw that as an opportunity to get a publishing deal. And I also had become friends with Richard because I always, I, I had followed him. I was a fanboy of his long before Curly's and I had, invited him in when we early opened up and I was like, Hey dude, we're doing a thick fat off the char grill dinner style patty. And we're doing the flat top, like crispy Cali West coast style patty too. And I'd love for you to try him out. I just thought he would think it was rad because most places do either or, and I wanted to offer, uh, something for everybody. But other than that, you remember the burger, it was just pops, Russian house pickles, caramelized onions and cheddar cheese you could take away but you couldn't add on if you wanted lettuce and tomato fuck off that wasn't the burger we don't even keep lettuce and tomato like that and so like if you wanted to add coleslaw or a fried egg or a veggie if you wanted to like really make it a filthy burger we we had your back yeah. you know yeah Maybe. you were like into people experimenting but not yeah. the lto but, but not, you know yeah not like and we have a rest we have a chapter called LTO, 
And it's like <laughs> the book and it's like lettuce, tomato, yeah. onion, but it's like, right. it's the exploration of like, do something with the lettuce or a leafy green or do something with a tomato. Like, I think one of the coolest recipes in that book is like a raw cherry tomato hot sauce. It's a Vitamix job. It's sweet. It's spicy. It's three minutes. And you have this really dope tomato-y hot sauce to add on your burger patty. But it's like, do something with your onions. You know, we're not, I mean, if you want to put that on your burger, like there's a place for it, but like yeah. craft it fucking in, in right. add a flavor component. If you're going to. Like in a Big Mac, it's traditional just to really finely dice the white onion and put that on there, I, but not these big friggin' slices. Yeah. I mean, look, if you want to do a nice paper thin shaved red onion or Vidalia onion, man, I love that. And sometimes like, even if you just kind of like splash a little bit of uh, lime juice and a touch of salt on there real quick. Sometimes what I really like to do is just like take the smoker gun and, and uh, just do a, a couple rounds of hickory smoke on those shaved Vidalia onions with some, with some salt and just do like a really lightly smoked uh, raw onion. That's delicious. Um, but I don't need to put like how to shave an onion raw into a book. You know what I mean? Like you do that, you do that on your own. Um, I think I've matured a lot <laughs> since Boston. Uh, I'm more about customer, like listening to what the customers want. My food identity at Pro and Proper is more dedicated to, I think, the stories and the techniques and the cultures and the food ways of Southern cuisine at large. And so if somebody wants something on their burger, I'll do it. We have the ability to do the whole ketchup to caviar thing at Peru, where in our first floor bar room, we are pushing fried, you know, Nashville hot chicken sandwiches and cast iron mac and cheese and <clears throat> biscuit crust pizzas and burgers and po' boys and fried catfish plates. But upstairs, we're putting out like $60 entrees. And like, we have a whole section of our menu that's just vegetarian share plates. So we get to be a little bit more playful and chefy upstairs while keeping it this trudier. So in, 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 in that kind of a dining situation, people don't really fuck with the menu. They order it because it sounds good. So in that bar room atmosphere where it's supposed to be for everybody, if you tell me you want lettuce and tomato on your burger, even though my burger doesn't come with it, I'm going to be like, yeah, absolutely. Because that's the whole point of it. It's supposed to be for the neighborhood, for people that are going to come in on a Tuesday night because they can get their favorite burger. And if their favorite burger's got lettuce and tomato on it, like, I'm not going to knock you for that, man. Yeah. You know, sometimes no point in embarrassing people. It's just like, it's like when you have a great wine program, you know, like I put together many wine programs in my restaurant career and, you know, but I'll, I'll, I'll put, I'm like, whatever. I don't care if I have to stock a California Chardonnay by the glass and because it's not about what you so I'm like, yeah, what if I have an eight top and there's like seven people that are way into what I'm doing, but one person just wants a glass of Chardonnay. And it's like, do I really want to have like that discussion and disrupt things or do I want to just be able to bring it to them and be like, you're happy. And now I'm going to do what makes me happy with the rest of this group. You know, I agree. And I and I think that that's just a maturity that comes with time in the industry. And I also think that we didn't like light in a bottle dynamic at Curly's and we did I don't know if you remember, but we had this when we were going through the build out, we were in the the opening uh, management team, uh, Kevin, Mabry, Susie Dagnus and 
Patrick uh, McGuire, the fucking yeah, OG Patrick. legend, and myself. Yeah, we love Patrick. We, we were in that place just dreaming it up and supervising the build out and doing what we could do. And we kind of, it was winter and we were drinking beers in there and just, you know, eating takeout in there and trying to, trying to like, it was so vital to what the place became because that's where it became what it became. And that's when we wrote this law and order that was on the back of the menu, if you recall. And it was like 10, 10 rules of conduct. And it was, it was just, it was fun and it was tongue in cheek, but it was like, don't be a douchebag. And like, you know, the customer's not always right if you're going to be an asshole. And so we had that like fucking vibe to us and it worked, but at times it could be exhausting. I mean, Patrick, Patrick would chase people down the fucking block if they didn't tip. And he was a hero for that. Um, and, and, and he, he got away with it and it worked and I think that even back then versus where we are now, we all realized that we can't do that shit. But like it was this rebellion going on in food service that needed to happen where we were like, you know, this is what we do for a living and we really care about this. And we're putting our heart and our soul and our personalities into this. And it's fucking so... It's just it's just such a blow to have customers come in and like not understand what you're doing or blatantly disrespect you, you know, expecting the world when we're like, look, this is what we do and how we do it. If you don't like it, fuck off. You know what I mean? Like we want your business, but not if you don't want to be here and experience what we want to experience. And I think it was like a time and a place and it never could have happened without the team and the city, you know, the town we were in, but, but, you know, I, I look back on it and I think that was really cool. And we got to express ourselves in that fashion, but you know, we all had to grow up and grow out of that and be like, no, actually we're, we're servants. And there's, you know, I guess you just have to figure out how to, how to serve the public in a responsible way where you get to be who you are and you get to say what you want and offer what you want, but you also respect the relationship and the dynamic and that the customer gets to have say in what you do as well, because without them, you don't have a business. Um, you know what I mean? Oh, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think the, I think the way I actually met Patrick to begin with is because he, I think he had seen my blog, the hundred things a customer should never do. And it was, it was of the time for sure, between like 2009 and 13, 14, it was like a, it was a movement. It was like, I mean, I, I worked in Chicago restaurants back in the late nineties and early two thousands. And that was back in my, like, I'll chase me down the block phase. Uh, <laughs> I grew out of that. Yeah. I was like, I'll chase them on the block, tell them to fuck themselves. But I was always really, really coked up. So, I mean, that made more sense to me to be aggressive, but like, uh, the, the dynamic Exactly. It's like you have to, there's always that mentality. It's like, you know what? There are hundreds of restaurants for you to eat at. You know, if you don't like what we're doing, like whatever. But at the same time, there's like those moments when you've been out with somebody, maybe it's like your cousin or like a relative and you're really uncomfortable because they're just maybe not that cool. And you're with like two other people who are cool and you're trying to like make this dinner work 
And when a server like starts giving attitude to the not cool person, it's just kind of like, Ugh, now you're making it worse for all of us. Yeah. Like we're just trying to chill and fucking like, like you just this person just shut them up. Like don't even you know pay them any fucking attention. Like we yeah. have your back. I'm paying. <laughs> like don't worry. Um, but I think that's yeah that's some it's a maturity thing. I think it's like when you get to the point where you're like, what do I gain by humiliating this person. I mean, now, yes, if you don't wear a mask in a restaurant, you should be publicly humiliated. Uh, I still hate people who are entitled and feel like they can come sit in the restaurant before you open and wait for you to open. I'm like, you don't do that at the fucking bank. You don't do that at the library. There's no other yeah. business people feel, feel entitled just to be like, okay, great, I'll just wait here. <laughs> and you're like, this is my time without you, <laughs> okay? Yeah, I mean, I ultimately it's like this. In my opinion, when you're not working in a restaurant, it's really easy to be full of shit and talk about the restaurant industry and be like, oh, we do it for the customer. And like half that shit I just said. But like when you're fucking in the restaurant seven days a week, fucking like a shell of a human being because you're there from open to close and you're coping and you're giving it everything you have just to make it work, and so is your staff, and you see how shitty people can be, it is really hard to not be like, hey dude, you're fucking shitty. It's just like when a celebrity comes into the restaurant, it's really exciting because it's like, it's, it's validation. It's like, holy shit, like fucking Don Cheadle's here. Like, don't blow up his spot or anything, but that's really special to us because that guy is like, the fucking man, and he decided to eat here, right? So it's like, I mean, the reality is when you hear a lot of these, I think, podcasts and you read these books and there's all these people talking about hospitality theory and they're always taking the high road, it's like, I think that, you know, Patrick McGuire is the Batman, the caped crusader, the dark knight that we need. Um, he is the breath of reality and... and and as much as I want to go on, I'm grateful for my customers and my clientele. And, and I'm fortunate that like we've never really had that many people that didn't dig what we were doing that sent stuff back. We like never got food sent back. And like if people were upset, it would be because they had to wait because we were really fucking busy. And we just send them a, a free glass of bubbles. You know what I mean? And be like, look, we get it. Like nobody wants to feel like they're not enjoying themselves when they're out spending good money to enjoy themselves. Here's a round of bubbles, get fucked up and the food will taste better and it works. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, um, like chill. yeah, you know, I think you have the, you have to stake your claim in a restaurant and you have to take control. It, however you do that. Like if you aren't like, yo, you're in my fucking house, you can do that in a cool way or in a shitty way. But if you're like, yo, you give an you're inch, in my... you give an inch with these people. Yeah. You got to say you're in my house. Welcome. You're here to experience what we offer, but you've got to do it in a friendly and an authentic and a charismatic way. But you got to put your foot down because, you know, people also need to feel like they can trust you. And they need if, if they're if it's in question, they haven't even sat down yet and they're pissed off at you. And it's like, whoa. I don't want you in my house for the next two hours if you're just going to be a fucking asshole. You're going to piss off my staff. You're going to send shit back. We're all going to be annoyed that you're here. You're going to be annoyed that you're here. You're going to be and annoyed here, exactly. And then I'm going to fucking give it all to you for free. I'm going to lose money. Fuck it. 
Like, leave and write the yeah. shitty Yelp review, whatever it is. Just get the fuck out. But, like, ultimately, the older you get, you realize with the right tools that you can communicate that in a way that's like, dude, I get it. But you're here to have a good time, and that's what we want you to do. So, like, have a drink. This is the reality of a busy restaurant, which is why you came here in the first place, because you heard that we're good, which makes us busy. And we wouldn't be considered good if we weren't good at what we did from the time you get your table onward. But until that time comes, you're just here waiting and you got to chill the fuck out. You know what I mean? Like, you're not really you're not really at the restaurant (laughs) until you get sat and you get handed menus. Then you can start judging us. Right. And it's like, what kind of person are you? Yeah. If you can't just like some people, as you know, they want to be offended. They want things to go wrong because they want to complain. They're not happy until until they get to complain about a bunch of shit. Yeah. I'm going to, you know. You know, and and I will say though, sorry that I'm just, I'm going to grab. Oh, please, dude. It's all good. Get a crowd of bed. Dude, I, I will say though that like, I've loved serving LA at Pru and Proper. Um, just the people that come in are so cool. And like, there's almost never been any problems. And I can look back and tell stories of every time there was a problem, especially early on, because it was so ridiculous. Because like the problem was so fucked up that you, you were just like, that's just a shitty person. Like that wasn't normal that that happened. It might've been like five instances in five years. Um, where it was just so ridiculous that it turned into a tale. Um, one of which involved me storming a table with a plate of fried hen they sent back because they said it was uh, they said it was not juicy. And I brought it back to the table and I squeezed the fucking juices <laughs> from its tender, perfectly cooked, fall off the bone flesh. And I was like, I'm sorry that that's dry to you, but this is the best I can do when it comes to fried chicken. And they said, I didn't say that it was dry. I said it wasn't juicy. (laughs) And then they documented all of this in like a fucking eight page Yelp review. It was great. Nice. (laughs) That's amazing. That was great. But that table was sending sending everything back. And the only yeah. regret that I have is that I, the, the fried game hen comes with four biscuits and they sent the hen back, which so obviously they weren't going to pay for, but they all had biscuits on their plate that they wanted to keep. And my only regret was that I didn't just fucking grab the biscuits and take them just, just out of spite. You know what I mean? Yeah. Give like, me these oh, back. You don't deserve them. <laughs> oh, you eat the biscuits though and you're not going to pay for them. Fuck off. Yeah, no, we do not sit and have free bread. That's not what we do. Um, yeah, I used to. Yeah, I, I I spent a lot of years on the offensive in the business. I think it's, I think the reason I'm the way I am now because I retired in 2017, and I'm like, just inevitably when you stop doing it, all that because there's a certain way I get in a restaurant when I'm waiting tables. I call it um, nuclear meltdown, blowing a head gasket. Where the only times this happens to me is when I'm driving or when I'm waiting tables or bartending. 
Like, I never get this angry otherwise, where I can literally watch myself, like, doing things, and I can't control it at all, because I'm so friggin' angry at people. They just set me off like that. Customers, you know. Yeah, I, and I think that it's the longer you do it, the more it just builds up over the years. Yeah. And I did 25 years, man, you know? I mean, yeah, dude, like, and... I mean, we're kind of in the same boat where like, you know, I've been doing this since I was 13, 12, really. But, um, but, um, and I'm 37, but like, I've, this is the, this is a really long break. We temporary close operations at this point since 315. And I don't even know if we're going to open, man. So, you know, right. we'll see what the world looks like. Uh, but I'm not tripping on it. I mean, the staff is good. They're being taken care of by the government. Everybody's healthy. I don't know anybody on my team that's gotten the coronavirus. So, like, there's not a lot to complain about in that sense. And taking the break, it's uh, – you do realize, like, it takes – it's a lot harder than it should be. And, um, you know, you got to ask, like, is it worth it, you know? Yeah. And absolutely. And especially when you see that like 85% of independently owned restaurants are subject subject to probably closure at this point. And it's because of uh, a business model and an infrastructure that never really supported financial success, which ultimately led to um, a few things. I think one buying into a um, corrupt food system because when, it, you know, into uh, all these HR nightmares. And, and what I mean by that is like underpaid employees, uh, undocumented, taking advantage of undocumented employees, like doing things out of having your back against the wall, making decisions because you have your back against the wall financially is a terrible place to be. And it's like, we didn't operate that way. And it was like, it was uphill battle every day. And it was like, we wore this shit on our sleeve. Like, no, I source my fucking food. I don't take pride in buying the cheapest food I can get my hands on to try to lower my food cost. Like, fuck that. You know, I'm proud that my food cost is 29%, which is like not high, but like in some people's eyes, it's high. I could have got my food cost down by 10 points. I mean, you know, like my duck breasts cost $14 a piece. And I remember, you know, when I'm supporting a, supporting a small family farm in Sonoma, and I remember uh, talking to a friend who was like, you can get an entire Long Island duck for $14, break it down, get two entrees, cone fee the legs, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but I don't want to support that. And he's like, and yeah. charge the same for the entree. And I'm like, I know, but that's not what I'm trying to do here. You know, it was just like, but, but it's anyway, not a longhorn steakhouse. It's, it's just like the the industry is the, the setup to make the operators make bad decisions. And I don't say that as an excuse for people who do, because we didn't believe in that and we didn't make those decisions, but like people take pride in taking advantage of people and in buying into a fucked up food system because they'll save money everywhere they can. They'll be like, it's a business of pennies. And like, so when I mean they take pride, they, they consider themselves smart and savvy in the restaurant industry because they know how to pinch the pennies 
And ultimately what that does is it creates these operations that lack integrity, they lack authenticity. These are gonna be the places that do make it out. And, and then, I, I don't know, it's just, I'm uninspired right now, dude. It's fucking weird, but I love food. It's not that weird. I you mean, know, you seem plenty inspired. It's not that weird to be less inspired. That's for yeah. damn sure. I'm uninspired about the restaurant business. I think it's bullshit. I grew up in it. I inherited it. I think what I do for a living is I cook and serve. And I celebrate food. And I celebrate culture. And I don't think I have to do that out of this, this you know, shitty business model that, that we've inherited. If you were listening to our last episode, uh, you heard me talking about the uh, Strawwater Distillery uh, Belfry Double Barrel Bourbon Whiskey. Now, in that episode, we were making delicious mint juleps, so going for a uh, sprightly, refreshing cocktail. So the whiskey itself has actually a fair amount of, uh, of depth to it, so it's it's the uh, Stra- from Strawwater Distillery. Uh, you can check them out at strawwaterdistillery.com. They're located at Thompson's Point in Portland, Maine. Uh, so the bourbon itself, it's a uh, double-barreled bourbon whiskey. So basically, uh, it's a special. It's a blended whiskey uh, that is finished in uh, maple uh, maple porter beer barrels uh, that are used used to age. Uh, Bissell Brothers Brewing. Uh, they have a brand or a beer they do called Angels with Filthy Souls, which is based, of course, on the hit film featured in the hit film Home Alone, uh, the one that Macaulay Culkin uses to scare everybody off from the Wet Bandits to the Pizza Boy. Uh, so as I said last time, we were doing some juleps. Uh, this time, I want to talk about uh, and enjoy a few of their signature cocktails that they make uh, at the distillery with the bourbon. Uh, this is called the Filthy Halo. So. It's, you know, obviously a play, again, on the angels with dirty souls. Angels with filthy souls. I'm sorry. Dirty, filthy. They're just, they're just, they're just filthy angels. But, and these are, this is a drink uh, named after their filthy halo. Uh, So to make it, it's uh, two ounces of your Belfry uh, double barrel bourbon that you got going, or more, depending on how strong you want it. I don't feel like, I feel like the amount of liquor in a recipe is just, that's just a, a, a suggestion. There's no requirements there. Um, then you want to go uh, with a, a half ounce of maple syrup. Uh, I like, for a drink like this, and all, and for cooking a lot of times, uh, I like the B-grade maple syrup. It, it it implies that it's not as good, but really it just tends to be darker and a little uh, more fully flavored. So I think in a drink like this with a bourbon like this, uh, I would go with a grade B, uh, but a high quality grade B maple syrup, but whatever you got on hand will work. Uh, and then uh, but four dashes of both uh, cherry and four dashes of orange bitters. So two kinds of bitters, four dashes of each. Um, I can recommend the uh, Owl and Whale brand. Uh, they are also another uh, Maine-based company. You can check them out. And basically, this is a, this is a stirred drink, so don't shake it because you don't want to you don't want to bruise your bourbon. Now, I've never really understood what bruised liquor, what the whole deal with that is, but the only way I can think of it, I guess, is if you're gonna shake it, 
you know, use ice that's made from good water, otherwise you're just going to be distributing, you know, shitty water flavor throughout your drink. So, but in this case, they recommend you stir it um, with some ice. <laughs> so stirred like a Manhattan. This is basically a version of a Manhattan, essentially, just a much sweeter version. Uh, you want to stir it with ice, then strain it to a rocks glass. Uh, and then if you have one of those uh, fancy spherical ice cube makers, or I guess it's not a cube, it's an ice sphere. It's a spherical ice sphere maker. Uh, if you have one of those, go ahead and slap that in there uh, just so you feel like you're, you know, part of the old-timey, new-timey, fedora-wearing set, um, which I think is kind of a, a thing of the past now, thankfully. I think that's over. I think they still might wear vests and shit, but I think, like, the full, goofy uh, wall of voodoo... Uh, is it wall of voodoo? No, no. Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. I think that look has kind of gone the way of the dodo. Um, no, wall of voodoo is great. That's uh, Mexican radio. Uh, which I can also recommend the cover of that song by Celtic Frost. Uh, it's quite good as well. So, yes, you want to go ahead and, and strain your filthy halo into a, a large Ross glass with one of your spheres of ice and garnish with an orange peel. Now, you could, if you want, you could flambe the orange peel if you wanted that extra flair and get some fire going. But I have uh, just gone with a regular orange peel here, and uh, I'm excited to uh, see how she how she does. Well, this is delicious. It's, uh, it's very mellow. Um, it is, uh, it's definitely sweet. Uh, but I feel like if you don't like sweet, you just drink the bourbon by itself. You don't really bother making a cocktail with it. I mean, you know, I'll be honest, like, I have personally drank the lion's share of this bottle of bourbon uh, that they lent me uh, on its own, and I've been really happy with it. I saved just enough to make a couple of cocktails, but me, I just like to slam the bourbon. So if you're around the Portland, Maine area, Head out to Thompson's Point, you can check out Straw Water Distillery or go to their website, strawwaterdistillery.com. Do not just make bourbon. They make lots of delicious spirits, uh, and I think you're going to love them and your filthy halo. Enjoy. So one of the first coffees that ever really opened my eyes to how good coffee can taste uh, was Speckled Axe out of Portland, Maine. Back then it was called Matt's Coffee, uh, and now it's called Speckled Axe. Uh, they have both blends and uh, single origin coffees. Uh, the flavors are just really intense. Uh, they're really funky. They're not, they're just so unique and different from any other coffee that I'd ever tasted that it sort of started me off in trying to, uh, on, on a quest to uh, just taste a lot of different kinds of coffee. It was one of the, the coffees that really got me to think about what I was drinking and and more importantly got me to think about you know how I was actually brewing my coffee because I would notice how I would have it you know at the shop they have two shops now they have one on uh, Congress streets uh, in Portland and it's at 567 Congress Street and also a brand new spot uh, right down on the waterfront which is really cool and that's at 18 Thames Street T-H-A-M Yes, or you can check them out at speckledax.com, and there's no E on the ax, it's just speckledax.com. Uh, so you can check them out there. But uh, he, he wood roasts his coffee, and he uses a, a vintage Italian uh, Petroncini uh, filled with local hardwood. 
Uh, it looks like most well-constructed industrial quality roasters, but instead of a series of gas jets, uh, there's a firebox beneath the uh, brick-lined steel drum. And so basically making it this way, uh, making it kind of a, a bit of a um, more traditional way, really lends itself to the complexity, the flavors and the characteristics uh, of this coffee. Uh, and you go, and it's, just, it's one of those places that literally, like, you want to go every morning, which I did. I used to go, I'd sit, have my chocolate donut, read the 48 Laws of Power, and later read Mastery by Robert Greene. This is the Speckled Ice Coffee Shop is where I basically read both those books in their entirety. I'd show up every morning at 6.30 and just hang out until 7.30, uh, sipping coffee. Uh, and they have also lots of cool different uh, you know, methods. They have like a siphon, a few other things you can check out. But I always went for the straight pour over. Um, but it's also the coffee that, uh, you know, got me through uh, the periods of the pandemic when you couldn't go to the coffee shop. I always brew it at home. Uh, it's absolutely delicious. And you should find out for yourself. Uh, you can check them out at speckledaxe.com or check out either of the shops at 567 Congress Street in Portland, Maine or 18 Thame Street in Portland, Maine. The new space is really cool. It's big. It's uh, lots of uh, natural lights right on the water. Uh, a little more, a few more options as far as the uh, the edibles there, but the same delicious coffee. Uh, and again, that is Speckled Axe Wood Roasted Coffee. And I think this is actually is a, is a good time to segue into something, uh, you know, totally different as your experiences in, in, in Chile. Uh, with sustainable uh, sustainable aquaculture, you know that you've been you've been documenting. Uh, obviously, you, you know, there are many causes that you are very active in, but this seems like one that's really close to your heart. Yeah, you know, aquaculture is a really big conversation to have. I was fortunate enough to to really start learning about sustainable seafood. Um. Maybe I started, it's not that, it hasn't been that long. Maybe I really started focusing on the journey like four or five years ago. And it really started to kind of steer the ship at Peru. Um, and then I've had opportunities to really learn firsthand about it. But aquaculture is a really, really interesting subject to talk about. I mean, what do you want to talk about when it comes to that? Like what I mean, I've just been I've just been watching some of the videos and and you know just seeing the seeing the people you're interacting with, you know the the setting. I mean, it's just obviously yes, it's a very broad topic. Um, is there a certain focus for? Because you're I mean you're documenting what you're doing in in Chile, or you documented? Yeah, the particular. So, you know the. Are you familiar with the the UN's Sustainable Development Goals? the SDGs. So this is this is something great to talk about. A lot of people aren't, so I wouldn't say they feel bad. I, I wouldn't feel bad about it. Um, it's something that I learned about maybe a year and a half ago when Mary Sue Milligan, um, amazing chef, good friend of mine, somebody I consider a mentor, uh, she taught me about them and brought me into this world. Um, basically, the UN created this this list of 17 sustainable development goals and a 2030 agenda to accomplish them. And basically if they could all be accomplished, 
all the problems in the world would be solved. It's, it's very comprehensive and there's actionable hubs focused on all 17 of these. And so there's these directives, these goals on how do we fix the world? Everything from like climate change to ocean conservancy to, um, you know, biodiversity, ending hunger, uh, ending poverty, um, supporting uh, like civil rights, like anything that you could think of that's like, this is fucked up on the world, in the world, and it needs to get better, right? Like I wanna stand for something and I wanna get involved and I wanna be a part of this, this global mission and I wanna help. And that's kind of what got me into uh, aquaculture was that aquaculture really starts to provide a lot of clear paths forward for um, one, this, this need to be able to, to sustainably produce healthy, nutritious, and delicious food for a growing population on planet Earth. Like we need, and that there's more, uh, there's more um, ocean than there is land. So we have this, as well as we have the ability to do on-land aquaculture and tanks, but that aquaculture is this really big, piece of the puzzle but it still has this bad rap because you know 15 years ago there was a lot of bad press about aquaculture when people hear farmed raised fish they're like oh that's bad you know and it's it's like it's not true anymore and so it's a story that needs to be told um you know wild caught is not synonymous with good by any means uh across the planet wild stocks of fish is, are, are they're constantly being overfished and depleted. I mean, 65% of the wild stock uh, species of seafood are overfished because of whatever government regulations are in those waters, they're being overfished. So, and then on top of just overfishing, there's also a lot of catch methods that aren't sustainable that cause bycatch that's just wasted and also disrupts the, the marine life and the marine environment. So like nobody's having these conversations to the general public. So the general public is still like, oh, wild caught's good, farm raised is bad. And then they we hear still don't like, have, uh We still don't have Maine shrimp here. We haven't had it for like four or five, four years, I feel like. And Occasionally you know, a research boat goes out, but yeah. So, and that's what's actually really cool about um, the United States, man. We drop the ball on a lot of shit. I really think we do. And um, I'm not going to get political with you. Uh, you can get as political as you'd like. I just don't really feel like it. Um, I mean, food is political. So everything we're talking about in some <laughs> sense or another is political. But I'm not going to get into the, the presidency or anything. I'm just going to say that, like, for all the shit we're not doing right, whatever that might be to you as a human being, as a citizen. One of the things we are doing right currently is um, our, our laws around managing our bodies of water. And the Magnuson-Stevens Act is a law that, that basically governs um, our coastlines, our coastal communities. And it, we are leading the world in our efforts to maintain healthy stocks. Um, and that's really cool. Like the rest of the world looks at 
how we used science-based data to manage our fisheries healthy. Um, and, and this is a bill that's been around since the 70s that's continued to be strengthened. And it, a lot of times it gets threatened. There's a, there'll be a bill that gets thrown on the floor of Congress where they want to weaken it because people are like, we should be able to catch more fish. We've always been able to maintain a stronghold. In fact, Joe, one of the coolest things I ever did in my life was I went to Congress last February with a couple other chefs and we met with state representatives. I represented California. I met with five different representatives. We met with Jared Huffman. We met, and then I met with Senator Feinstein's office to say, hey, there's a bill that's being presented to weaken the MSA. Let's keep it strong. We're leaders globally for this stuff. Let's keep our, our, our fish stocks healthy. And, you know, enough, P, enough representatives voted no on HR 200 where that didn't get passed. But so we're doing a really good job of that. So a lot of times when you see U.S. wild caught, that actually is good stuff. Um, but most wild caught seafood in the grocery store isn't U.S. We export 80 percent of our fish to other countries because it is a premium product and other countries will pay more for it. And then we import 80 percent of what we eat because the American people don't value food anymore and we want it cheap. And so we're supporting unsustainable seafood in so many ways. And when we are, when we're, when we're, we, but we also don't do a lot of aquaculture in this country. And so the, the conversation just gets, it gets, starts going down all these different channels, man, that it can get confusing. But I'll say aqua, modern aquaculture is only like 30 or 40 years old. And the developments that have been made over the last decade have been huge. And the science and the ingenuity and innovation is just, it's all that the industry knows how to save the world when it comes to farming fish sustainably you know, while measuring the impact and being able to produce healthy, nutritious, delicious protein the right way to be able to feed planet Earth. And, and it's becoming more and more affordable to the point where that Chilean, it was a seasonal run coho that I was checking out and new to market, like they've only done three runs of it. So three years, it's only been going for three years. Every year they double the capacity. So it's a seasonal run coho varietal of salmon and they're able to like produce this stuff and sell it to Walmart. And Walmart can sell this coho to customers in America for like $9.99 a pound, which is like crazy. That's nothing. Crazy. I mean, that's what your standard bullshit farm raised Atlantic salmon is costing you. Maybe um, even more, yeah. You know, is $9.99 a pound. Um, but see, then there's just so many misconceptions. Like, you know, the whole color added thing to salmon. Yeah. Yeah. Because their color is based on their diet of eating shrimp. Right. And other, you know, other, um, species, they'll get their color from different species. But the thing with color added that's weird is that it's not, it's something that I don't know if it's FDA or the USDA. I get them confused when, in terms of like what they're regulating. But I, I think it's the, I think it's the USDA where they, they decided to, to make you say color added. Um, but it's, 
It's not. So it's misleading. So a lot of times where they're getting that nutrient source, which also adds the pigment in the feed is from krill, um, which the krill is providing some vital, some vital um, nutrients and omegas while also providing the, uh, the coloration that you could get from other crustaceous um, life forms. And so because they're putting krill in the feed, the government's like looking at that as like a color added situation. And so people think that the food is being dyed. So even the good salmon that's being it's labeled color added, that's being produced sustainably would still have to be labeled color added. So then the general public is like, well, that's, that's bad. That's a really important thing. That's a really important point for people to know. I had no idea if I, I mean, saw I color, just, I'll be I honest, if I saw color that. added, I'd be like, what? <laughs> like, I know. Um, I mean, there's so much to learn. So that's kind of where the burger, like when I left Boston and I got, I got to LA, I was able to focus on Southern food, which was so exciting for me because even at Curly's early on, we considered calling Curly's cornbreads and it was going to be named (laughs) after, uh, uh, one of a, a famous Celtic player who was nicknamed cornbread. And, I can't remember the guy's name because my uh, our, our one of my friends who is one of the owners, Andy Carton, he came up with the idea. And because I was like, dude, like this cast iron cornbread could be like something we're famous for. Like you could see it on the table, like every table gets it. And and, you know, we could have a really cool Southern vibe. But ultimately, like they didn't want to brand the concept as Southern. So if you looked at my menu, it was like. And I said, dude, this is kind of like me being sneaky about Southern food. You'd be like, oh, I can see that. So I love that I got to express that in L.A. Um, and but what happened was I started to really, you know, we, we opened up and we had this burger that like instantly was like, oh, this burger is one of the best burgers in L.A. This guy just wrote the book on it. But then what happened was we started to really get a lot more um, love for our seafood because people loved our Dungeness catfish, catfish with the red remoulade and we do this seafood gumbo pot which is and then we would do these uh we do these like uh a lot of dock to dish kind of sourced from the local coast santa barbara fishermen whole fish preparations and we just we're not a seafood concept but we would sell three to one in terms of weight fish to um, terrestrial animal protein, yeah. which... We got the shrimp and oyster po' boy on there, too. Oh, yeah, the shrimp and oyster. God I damn. mean, we are selling so much seafood, dude. Like, actually, the I buy more catfish and octopus than anything else, but we're blowing through oysters. We're blowing through shrimp, of course. Um, I love the fact that we were able to put out this really dope uh, octopus, charred octopus dish, and that our customers loved it and supported it. And, and, um, so, so when I started to see that we were able to kind of celebrate Southern cuisine through so many different avenues, but that people really loved the seafood, that's when I really started to get into the, you know, research the sourcing more and then work with Monterey Bay Aquarium. And they had asked me to join the Blue Ribbon Task Force, which is kind of like an invite only like secret like it's like the blue ribbon task force is like their Navy seals. And there's about 50 <laughs> chefs yeah. 
from around the country that are handpicked and like it's been so cool. I've gotten to make friends with so many amazing chefs and learn together and learn from them and share things. But that's kind of when I took the shift from burgers to seafood and like really started to explore the ocean more and and sustainable seafood. And then specifically how I got into aquaculture was realizing that, you know, when you want to message something to the general public to, to try to help out with the bigger picture, you know, I realized like aquaculture has such a bad rap that we need to tell our, we need to put it on our menus as chefs. We're tastemakers, we're influencers. We need to tell the general public that it's not just farm raised, but this is algae fed salmon. Hey, what's that? Like, dude, this is a seasonal run coho salmon from Chile that's flipping the script, changing the game. It's, it, you know what I mean? They're using algae in the meal to provide the salmon with its omega-3 EPA and DHA. And on top of that, it's a lot, that's allowing them to cut down on how much wild caught fish they're using. So now it's like, they've got like, they're growing this stuff as opposed to like bad farm raised fish. It could take like 10 pounds of wild caught fish to, to go into the meal to produce one pound of farm raised, which sounds really bad, but that's also about what it looks like in the wild. And so they've been able to, so like, but it's like one thing to let wild be wild. It's another to like knowingly, willingly disrupt a, a, a aquatic life like cycle ecosystem. Yeah, right. Yeah, to go well, let's catch it ourselves and turn it into a feed. But so with this with this algae meal, which is like a new innovation, they've been able to get the get the feed down to it taking only a half a pound of wild caught fish to raise a pound of salmon. So when you look at these sustainable metrics and you go, oh, and the algae they're producing is like on land and it's fermented and it's sustainably produced and it's like super fucking healthy. And you go like, they're really figuring this industry out, man. And so instead of putting wild caught salmon on my menu, I'm going to put algae fed salmon on my menu. And instead of turning my cheek to Vietnamese shrimp or saying like, hey, shrimpers in Southeast Asia are bad and boycotting them. I put shrimp on my menu, specifically farm raised from Vietnam to support sustainable farmed shrimp that's coming out of Vietnam to say, hey, look, it is being done. It can be done. And this is also the best shrimp I've ever tasted in my life. So instead of me just going, I'm only going to get wild caught, you know, U.S. wild-caught shrimp because that's the best. We go, I want to support people that have a bad rap to show the world, to show my customers that this bad rap is bullshit. And like, yeah, there's still a lot of um, unsustainable shrimp farming practices being implemented in Southeast Asia, but we're the number one country that's buying from them. So if we say, hey, we're going to support the good stuff, and they go, oh, wait, so if we do it better and it costs more, you'll still buy it from us? System, you know, just through the economic impact of it. And I'm telling you, dude, this is the best shrimp I've ever fucking had. Like, it's so sweet and plump and it has a great snap. And um, it's also helping restore the mangrove forests that historically have been demolished for unsustainable shrimping. And they're basically 
able to use these new methods um, to bring back and restore and rejuvenate the mangrove forests, which are kind of like, almost like to Southeast Asia, what I understand, they're just as important as the rainforest. In, to Amazon, to, yeah. You know, yeah, that, yeah. that, well, and I guess that, you know, the rain, that the rainforest and the Amazon are like supposed to be the lungs to the whole world. Like, yeah. they're, you know, <laughs> but like, you fuck with about, those. Yeah. Yeah. But when we talk about the ocean, you know, the ocean is responsible for most of our clean air that we breathe and so many other things. I mean, it's like really staggering when you read about how important the ocean is and then you see the direct correlation with the fish that we're eating um, and how like as chefs and as consumers that if we were to make right choices in our seafood purchasing and consumption, that those all have a direct impact on everything that's being, that's threatening the health of our oceans right now. So anyway, learning all of this stuff, I was like, yeah, oh, dude, like I don't, I never really wanted to be the burger guy. Not that I have, <laughs> you know, a chip on my shoulder. Like I, right. my best. Well, this is more to life than burgers. Burgers are great. But. It is. But so I was yeah. like, I got so consumed by this that I was like, you know, I started going out into the world and on adventures to learn more about this. And fortunately, I had the ability to have a platform to to be able to share these stories. I thought my my goal last year and well, early on in 2020 or 2019, rather, was that if I was going to learn this stuff, that I was going to take the time to write really thought through posts to share it so that people could read it and go, okay, and learn some stuff. And instead of just doing it for my own sake. And, and so, and I think that a lot of people noticed that because I was really exhausting my breath on the subject. And, um, you know, as I take a step back now, I think maybe this is my next chapter maybe i wouldn't be upset with becoming the well, it sounds like you're almost you're ready for a transition of sorts i mean i mean, I mean who knows when did it hit you to do a transition you know because you're saying that you know you said kind of you you well you've always done i've always thought of you as a you know an entertainer and a host more than anything else because that's how i met you and your personality is just so big and and fun and but you've got the experience and the knowledge and yeah you know. right. I mean, the restaurants were my, my background. You know, I did that for 25 years. I sold wine wholesale for 10 years um, simultaneously. Like, those were always the things that supported me and kept the fire burning. You know, when I finally gave it up was when I, I had this day where I was just like, Joe, you just, you just did something so egregious and mean to somebody in a restaurant that you don't own. And you have no right to do that. Like, I think it was this thing that people walked in. And I was just kind of like, what the fuck are they smiling at? You know, it was just like right from there. I'm like target on them. I'm going to ruin their night. And I was like, okay, this is your cue to maybe take a step back. And then I had this doozy of a fucking blackout, like the next shift. And that was like, you know what? I am done with this because it's not my place to fuck somebody else's livelihood up because I am having a bad day or I'm in a bad mood, you know? Yeah. Uh, That's just how it is. A lot of servers, I think they... Yeah, that's the thing about youth to, to you know, it's like the 22-year-old who's like, it's all about me. And it's like, nope, unless you're writing the paychecks here, it's not all about you. <laughs> like, 
you know, I mean, obviously it's about you to a certain extent. We're not asking you to take abuse, but like you don't get to just decide yeah. right off the bat, you know, to, to pass judgment. But that, that's what sort of led to my official uh, retirement from the business and that, and, you know, getting fucking fat. But, you know, uh, you know, I can't work doubles anymore, man. You got to, you know, you know, I got the fucking, the, I did, I did love discovering that Gold Bond did that, like, um, that like, <laughs> deodorant stick you put between your legs so there's no more cornstarch, you know? And I was like, okay, you don't get the swamp donkey or whatever. Like, I can, like, I tried to work, I worked at my last, one of my last draws, I mean, I did it for four more years, but it was like, those Davios in Boston, actually. And I was doing doubles there, and I was like, I remember the first shift, the first double I had worked for a while, I was like, oh, man, this is, <laughs> this is going to be trouble. Like, midday, I'm like, I can't go anywhere, but I'm going to be in a lot of pain uh, for the rest of the shift. But anyway, I think it's just more, it, it's, you know, there are people that are, you know, 60 that are great at front of the house. I'm somebody who I think it was time you know, yeah, I accepted it. No, I hear you, and I don't. You know, I think it's more common. I, I, I. It's an interesting subject. Um, you know, when you're a chef, the idea of a double isn't even a concept anymore, and it's just like that's a shift for you. That's your day, if you will it. And well, in the so, front of the house, I will interject real quick. It's like. The, the more shifts, it's like the more rounds of people I have to meet today. Oh, yeah. Every turn. Yeah, I don't, every I don't turn is a new it. round of people. <laughs> you know, I bartended for three years before we opened doesn't up. doesn't surprise me. You have a great personality. Yeah. So, like, I look, I get it. And I had so much fun. And a double behind the bar is, like, fucking crazy, dude. You feel like you ran a marathon or got hit by the teeth. Like, it's – and, yeah, like, taking – you know, it takes it out of you. It's exhausting. I don't necessarily think that any job is harder or easier or less or more important in the restaurant. I think that um, it's easier to get fed up when you're in the front of the house and why more people don't make careers out of it is because, and why it's considered like, oh, what, what do you really do or are you in school and why it's <laughs> yeah, so what's your real job you know, <laughs> it's transient because you can't tolerate it for too long like you can tolerate it through your 20s and then it's just too much it's too exhausting you get fed up and even cooking for a living is like that with so many people because the lifestyle it really fucking you either build yourself out of that worker role or you get out of the industry, so to speak. Even as an owner, like, you know, the one of the last podcasts I did was with Southern Fork, and she came to the restaurant to talk to me on a Saturday. And I don't know what the fuck I was thinking about scheduling that. But anyway, she came in, and I was like, tell her I'll get to her. And then, like, three hours later, I was like, tell her to order some food. I was, like, on the fucking line, like, cranking yeah, saute station all night long. And she was like... Oh. You know, so I was like, well, at least I got to cook you dinner. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, you got the octopus? I was on that station tonight. You know what I mean? So, um, and she was like, that's crazy that you're like, you know, the sh the chef and the owner and that you're, you know, on the line. And I'm like, well, we're fucking busy. And that's what I needed to do. Um, you kind of never get to not do that. And that's, if you can enjoy it, it's cool. But, you know, with the front of the house, the trap is... 
that in order to kind of step up in the management, you take this major pay cut, right? Because Absolutely. then you, you, you don't get tipped. More and, responsibility, more hours, less money. And it doesn't make any sense. But so the entire restaurant business is corrupted by this tipped model and it's nobody's fault. I don't want to, it's not the customer's fault. It's not the restaurant tour's fault. It's not the front of the house's fault. And I don't see any way of fucking changing that. I don't know. Like I'm not interested in it. Um, but it's, it's corrupted because there's a small group of people that get to go in, work six hours, make more money than anybody else, oftentimes including the owners and not take any stress home with them. I mean, dude, that's but what because sucked me in about the industry yeah, to begin yeah. with. That exact position. Walking home, and they don't do this anymore. That's another thing that took the wind out of my sails. You know, getting all my cash at the end of every night. Am I going to take a 10 o'clock table if I'm getting the cash an hour later? Sure. If I'm getting on a fucking paycheck in two weeks, fuck these people. They're keeping me late, and I don't give a shit. And that money's yeah. going to get taxed and whatnot. I mean, of course that's going to create that culture and that mentality. And, you know, so it's not the server's fault. But, you know, the other thing is, is like that six hours is exhausting and draining because of the human interaction. And so the rest of the restaurant is kind of fucked up in the head about it because they're like, you know, in California, like servers make as much as my dishwashers for an hour minimum wage. But like, I can't afford to pay my dishwashers more than fifteen dollars an hour, especially because all the fucking servers are getting that much money, and the busboys and everybody else. So like, I don't have the wage budget to give them any more money. But it's kind of a mind fuck to think the dishwasher works. How much do you have to pay servers an hour these days? In California, $15 an hour. In That's LA. fucking insane. In LA. Because the whole point of it used to be that servers we made $2 an hour didn't get a paycheck. We made a fuckload of money, but like we got $2 an hour and we didn't declare shit and that was it. The customers paid our fucking salary for us and you didn't have to. But if you're paying servers $15 a fucking hour, dude, like come on. Like, well, how's that going to work? Makes us financially unstable. Um, but it's just, you know, when you pay people $2 an hour, they have the mentality that, well, fuck that. That's not my job, dude. You don't pay me enough to do that. Like you tell a server to go clean the fucking toilets. They're probably gonna be like, uh, no, like, yeah. But if that server makes 400 bucks a night at your restaurant, they're going to be like, well, I could lose this job and that would suck. Yeah, but you know what I mean, though, right? There's that mentality, and you can't blame them for it. But the problem that I see is that that's become a service staff cultural mentality to have. So even like where your servers are getting paid fifteen dollars an hour, they're still kind of like that's not my job, and you know. And so, like once again, I don't want. I'm not attacking servers. Um, My friends are servers. Half my crew are servers. I value what servers do, um, but I can see how, like, a dishwasher who works ten hours, eleven hours, twelve hours gets paid overtime wages, you know, of twenty-two fifty an hour, and still clears half of what a server made that day that works half the hours. That's a mind fuck, and that's a yeah. But it's also kind of no like you know the hard work does. 
I'm saying like the hardworking crew of like a movie compared to the movie star or the actors, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like that. I guarantee you the crew is working a lot harder than the, than the actors and the star are, but you know, they're the ones that are the face of the operation. They're the ones that are out there selling it. You know what I'm saying? I think there's something to be said for that. I don't know if it causes, I don't think it's worth the, the mishandled, um, income. I don't, I mean, you know, if it was easy to be a fucking actor, all of the servers wouldn't be servers anymore in LA. So like, I mean, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of people in the world that can be trained on how to wait a fucking table the same way. There's just as many that can be trained on how to wash dishes or how to cook. Um, I don't think that anybody, I think you're going to have really talented cooks and you're going to have cooks that can just cut the mustard, but you need everybody and you're going to have the same with servers. You know, when we try to talk about why servers deserve to earn four times more than anybody else in the restaurant, it's because they're the face and they're the, well, I mean, there's a rock star server and then there's 10 dog shit servers that don't know anything about the fucking menu. And that's why I don't, that's why I don't pull, you know, and some some motherfucker that's been working me for working for me for a year and look everybody's a motherfucker to me so I'm not saying this about my staff like that like but I'm saying like when some motherfucker comes up to me in the kitchen and they ask me what a bene seed is and they've been working for me for a year and I'm like dude that's on the menu it's printed on the fucking menu like and you like for starters. The audacity that you have to like let me know that you don't know what the fuck that is. <laughs> the fact that you can't fucking Google it. The fact that you don't have menu retention after a year. And you know, the fact that I know you've worked at other places that are corporate and that force you into menu training and you probably know everything on their menu, but because we're more like mom and pop and like trust you to fucking do your job and like retain the menu. When you're hired, like I say to you, like I wrote the menu so that everybody, the menu speaks, it's a message to communicate to the cooks, to the servers, to the customers, everything you need to know. And if you know that, then you know how to read the menu well informed. And what that means is if you don't know what the fuck a term is, come ask me. If you don't know what it is after a year and that item's been on the menu for a year. Maybe look I'm it up on Google. Out that, <laughs> you know, I'm, just, I'm just finding out that like you don't give a fuck about like what I do. That's how it feels to me. That you've been bullshitting customers for your tips. That's not how it feels. That's how fucking, it is. Yeah. This whole fucking time. Um, because we're into heirloom ingredients and sustainable ingredients. And, like, you need to know that shit, you know? Yeah, what's a bene seed? It's a fucking Genesis <laughs> crop of sesame that comes from West Africa that was brought mm-hmm. to America during the slave trade. We get them from Anson Mills. They're grown, off the, uh, they're grown in South Carolina. They're very, like, nutty and hempy and woody, and they just have way more texture in flavor than, than your generalized, like, you know, kind of pearly white sesame and they go great in dukas. We use them to make tahinis and Persian spice blend. Yeah. I mean, 
but it it's also something that'll add a you know one of the cool things that we use it for is on our burrata dish so our burrata dish is is like basically a muffalata sandwich dude you would really love this burrata dish and yeah, so yeah. it's a big fat scoop of joya burrata it's a family it's a very fresh family made burrata it's the best burrata that i've ever had it's so fresh that it's like three-day shelf life it's highly perishable it's amazing though i mean and instead of doing that kind of savory or that sweet like fruit vibe with our burrata dish we do like a shaved house-made tasso ham hickory smoked nice and spicy a layer of that and then we do the burrata and then we have this um this house-made muffalata relish so it's like a fermented pickle jardinier uh, that's then cut with uh, some Castel Vetrano olives and capers and, you know, good olive oil, garlic, like just a really good like olive spread that you'd get on a muffalata sandwich in New Orleans. So that really, and then, so which, and then we put some Cajun pork cracklings on top of that. And then we crush it with some of the toasted bene seeds, some grilled baguette, a little bit of mustard flowers. Uh, they're beautiful and they taste great. And I think that's everything on the dish. It's like nothing crazy, but when you think about eating the muffalata sandwich, it's saturated in olive oil. It's got your pork. It's got your cheese. And then what the dish would be missing without the bene seeds is like one of the best parts of that muffalata sandwich is when it's like that the top of the bread has the sesame seed on it and then you just bite into it and it's fucking great. And so we were like, oh man, how cool is it to like use these bene seeds for that? And the burrata was like, dude, I mean like almost, I'd say one out of every three tables would get the burrata at our restaurant. It was like a staple on our menu, especially because like our tasso ham that we were making was really dope too. Like it was just a good dish. And, you know, I say that because we're not open, so... Like at this point, it was a was it was like one of our signature like charcuterie plates, and knowing that the bene seeds makes it that like you couldn't they didn't convince, know that you, yeah. the, you couldn't you, you couldn't eat it and be like fuck you that is like a little muff toast without it. <laughs> I mean, come on. Dude, you're making me want to come out of retirement. I'm not gonna lie, and work for you. And it probably won't happen. That's just a fantasy world. But see, I am the guy. When I work for somebody, I'm enthusiastic for. Like for instance, there's a restaurant called Miyaki in Portland uh, that I worked for for you know five years. Japanese gentleman uh, Masa Miyaki. When I'm into it, man, and that's what I do. It's like, I'm not the fa- I'm a salesperson. It's like my tips are like my commission, kind of. You know, it's like, but I'm out there like because I believe in the product. I won't sell product I don't believe in. Now. When I asked you to do this podcast, I absolutely knew we'd have so much fucking things to talk to each other about uh, <laughs> that I kind of want to go into a little bit of a rapid fire round with you. Let's do it. And just ask you about a couple things. Let's do it. Uh, that just I'm just interested in. They're a little lighter than what we've been talking about. For sure. Um, and yeah. do me For a us- favor. I don't yep. want to. You don't necessarily have to edit anything, and maybe even this kind of like PSA is good enough. I love my staff and I really appreciate everything they did. And like, ultimately, you know, I got really pissed at that dude that didn't know what a bene seed was. And then I talked to him later on in the office. So it's okay to like 
share that. But I want you to know, and I want anybody that would hear that to know that like one of the most frustrating parts about that particular situation is when you realize that you yourself as an owner operator dropped the fucking ball so hard because you didn't teach that person that you clearly didn't set up the structure and the tools to make sure that they knew what that was right because like that was my fault and you can only expect so much out of your people and to know that deep down in your heart that that person was was a great employee and was like so proud to be a to be a part of the restaurant and to tell people that's where I work and to like welcome guests into the restaurant and be like enthusiastic about it but to know that like no matter how hard you try you still can't achieve the excellence you want and a big part of it and I know it sounds like a bullshit cop out, but a big part of it, once again, is the financial limitations that like, why didn't we have like um, staff, better staff education? Well, because I'd need to bring my staff in once a week for two hours. I could develop the resources and I could, I could teach them. I have those skills, but they'd all have to clock. And I think they'd even be willing to show up, but they'd all have to clock in. And I didn't have the fucking money to pay $30 a head times 20 people once a week to educate them. And that was like, you know, it used to be when we were coming up that you did that and you didn't get to clock in. And that was just yeah. what, it was part of the state. And we couldn't just Google Benny Seed on our phone like that guy could have. Absolutely. Know. We couldn't get that information <laughs> But also, like, you know, like you were saying, it was like if it was part of the prestige. If you want to work at this restaurant and make this money or gain these skills, then you will show up to this mandatory fucking education. And yeah. people were like, yeah, you should sure. want to. But, you know, and I understand that, like, you can't do that to people now and that people have a life and that they should be paid if you're going to do that. But so once again, the whole model, I remember coming up. And the toughest kitchen that I worked in, like that I was lucky to get to cook at, and I learned a fuckload there, dude. But like, I would get there at 11 a.m., 10 a.m., noon on a late day. I decided when to get into work based off my prep list that I wrote the night before and how many covers we had on the books that day, and that I would have to get in to do my stationary prep and my mise and set my station up to be ready for service by five o'clock. And so it would typically be 11 o'clock. I didn't, I wasn't allowed to clock in until three. And then I had to clock in at 11 as soon as like service closed. And then we would clean for two hours. So like I'd be there from 11 a.m. to 1 a.m. but be paid eight hours. And that was just how it was because you weren't allowed to get overtime. You weren't allowed to work more than eight hours a week, a day. But if you wanted to learn from that kitchen, you better show the fuck up and take care of your station. And then it's your duty to clean afterwards until the kitchen looks brand new. And like, you know, that was like fucked up, but I learned a lot. And so it was kind of like, you know, I, I don't know how we make that justifiable in today's um, landscape. I just, well, it's crazy I see, because- I see, the, uh, I see the merit in the idea that like, 
what I do for a living is a trade. It's a skill set. And if I want to work at a great restaurant that's going to teach me more, it's going to teach me skills, execution, technique. It's going to teach me excellence and discipline, all these things that I should not only feel lucky to get to cook there and learn from that chef, but like also feel lucky that they're willing to pay me for eight out of the 14 hours a day that I'm there. When I know that like a lot of people go to Europe and stage for free. So like we're talking about how do you take this chef driven model that strives toward excellence and look at it differently than all these other restaurants because we're cut from a different cloth. Um, you know, when you look at that, oh, food service, everyone's saying it like food service employs like, you know, 8% of the workforce and these are the millions of jobs that are being lost. But, and we're having this conversation in our, you know, independent chef driven community, but it's like, those aren't our people. Those aren't our jobs lost still. Like, I'm not saying I don't care about those places, but like, you know, they are the mom and pop joints that, that just put out like, decent food and they buy shit food and like you know people just do it for a job or if it's a mom and pop place that supports the mom and the pop and they're serving their neighborhood those are important places but like i i don't know like those aren't the places that we're talking about dude where you need education and where you're getting new interesting shit in um, and let me tell you I'll, I'll come at it from a different perspective even more base perspective of a front of the house professional, you know, I'm a salesperson, man. The more I know about my wine list and my menu, the more I sell, the more money I make. Like you think I, I didn't train myself to sell $15 glasses of grappa and pour it on top of desserts on top to every fucking table. You don't think I'm learning how to sell bottled water instead of tap water to every table. You don't think that's how I got into the wine business to begin with. Cause I'm like, wow, if I know how to sell $300 bottle of wine, like, you know, and I got on it and I learned and I learned. And I mean, obviously I love it. So it was easy. It wasn't like having to learn about yeah, like yeah. vacuum cleaners or some shit. But I was just like, dude, like, why would I not want to take my game to the next level? It just benefits. Well, it benefits everybody. The restaurant makes more money. I make more money. I separate myself from the pack and look like a fucking superstar, which I am, by the way. I yeah, no, look, <laughs> In I my, know. I in mean, my prime, cut, I'm the best server ever. <laughs> you're cut from another cloth. And, like, a restaurant is lucky to have one of you. I do think that my experience on the East Coast especially in the Northeast, being in New York and Boston for close to 15 years in total, that I was, I got used to the professional server and what that standard of excellence looked like out there. And it does look different in LA. And um, I think that, uh, I think that, that I like my mentality is as an East Coaster and that I like the excellence of New York City, um, which trickles to the whole tri-state and New England area. And uh, in LA, it's like, you kind of, I don't know, it's like, yeah, you've got real people, you've got passionate people, you've got tons of people that are from here and people that are interested and passionate about service. Um, but you also have a lot of people that like are like, hey, just so you know, I'm an actor. Hey, just so you know, I'm in school. There's a lot of people that are attracted to the quick money of it all. And 
Um, well, that's why they came to LA to begin with to become an actor or whatever. Yeah, and and it can be, and so because they've you know I respect that they've got another life outside of the restaurant, but it they're not they they're like I don't how do I say it like they don't already have like this passion for food and beverage like the way that my tribe from the East coast. And, and so we did a really great job of over time, slowly gathering and collecting a staff that was like, you know, so to speak foodies that they were like, Oh, when I'm reading this menu, like I understand, you know, the first few years, it was just like, why do you want to work here? And it would be like, ah, saw there was a job available. And eventually it was like, I want to work here because of what you guys do, because of what I've read about what you guys do, fucking food because of the food, I see the menu and the product and it's sick, you know, but there was the early on, it was like really hard. It was like, you know, people that would apply to work for us could, would just as easily be happy, like working at like fucking, uh, TGI Fridays, like legitimately, and it didn't really matter to them. And they're just going to show up and bullshit their way through a shift versus being like, dude, I just learned about grappa and I got to taste it and I'm ex- and I'm going to learn more now. Hell yeah. And if you don't really give a shit, you're not going to do that. If you tell people to sell for the sake of selling, they're not that good at of being a salesman. In my experience, you can't find a server that's like, well, I don't care about food, but I am <laughs> passionate about sales. You know what I mean? So, like, so I think really I would love to meet end. that guy. He sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to find people that are really into food and into dining and that go to great restaurants on their days off to eat out and they go, you know, and when you hear your staff talking about bullshit in the service, you know, in the little service area, you're like, cool. Like, well, that's the sum of my staff is their bullshit. When you hear your staff talking about that, they just went and they ate at porridge and puffs and had this amazing dining experience. And they're like, Oh, I got to check that out. It's on my list. You go, fuck dude. I'm blessed with like a, a group of people that are into this and they're representing that, you know, and that's what we had, which was, you know, what was dope. Um, but it's really hard to get that. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, and it's also to the point, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of phase off the topic, but I will say that it's to the point here where I've had restaurant owners literally be like, if you find me a line cook and they stay for two months, I'll pay you $300 finders fee. Like, that's how desperate, and this is before COVID, obviously. Yeah. Like, that's how the pool is just thinning out. I'm going to start by telling you that earlier you said that a burger has to be made with beef, yet you made lamb burgers with Jenna Elfman. Yeah. (laughs) Who is in the Anthrax video for Black Lodge. Did you know that? Oh, no, I didn't know that. Dude, she's like the wayward drifter who gets kidnapped, and they mind they they brainwash her. So the guy whose wife has like dementia is like they're taking her life force and like d- diverting it over to the 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 wife, and who's living all these past experiences. Check it. Out. I mean, Anthrax. I mean, The Sound of White Noise is an amazing album to begin with. If you aren't an Anthrax fan, you should be. She's Everybody fucking listening. awesome. She's fucking awesome, dude. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought really that was just so random. I was like, dude, he made Jenna Elfman a lamb burger. That's fucking cool. Um, so what 
I'll say that that point of view was a book. And <laughs> it was what I wanted, what we wanted to do with our book. Um, because we thought that when we looked at the market of burger books, that there wasn't anything tr true to form out there for like a real burger lover in terms of like when you go out and you get a burger, you're not like, who's got the best salmon burger in town, right? So what <laughs> right, happens right. is these burger books become convoluted because people are trying to like create different types of burgers for you to simulate at home, which ultimately like, I think it's cool, but that's not what we wanted to do with an entire book. Because it's like, I don't want to tell you how you like your burger. I want to tell you, like, I want to give you like a map of different things that you can and equip you to make your own burger. And if you decide that like that coleslaw with that fucking cheese sauce and those pickles on that type of bun is the burger that you want to eat, then you go for that. And with that being said, you know, home and family on the Hallmark channel has been really <laughs> good to me. And I've been yeah. on that show like four or five times and I was just speaking with one of the producers the other day. Like, I think that they're really lovely people and they did a lot of really great things for promoting the American burger revival. Like they had, they let me promote my book like three times. Eventually these motherfuckers, I was like, I don't want to do burgers anymore. And so they were like, no, but Woody loves your burgers. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> Fuck you, then. I'm doing a lamb burger. <laughs> well, dude, let's like, we just face it. Lamb is like beef with fuller flavor and better tasting fat. I mean, oh, right? If it's good it's, lamb, I mean. Good lamb. I love Colorado lamb for the fat. The uh, best lamb fat in the world, yeah. in my opinion. Um, dude, lamb sweetbreads? Yeah. Oh, fuck. Lamb is amazing. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. my grandparents are from Lebanon, and I grew up as a young child. My teta which is, you know, Arabic for grandmother, was still alive until I was eight, and she cooked every day, and it was always Lebanese food and lots of lamb. And so that was kind of why I did the lamb burger on Home and Family, because I was like, they love kind of getting to know your family backstory with things that you prepare. So I was like, well, at least if you want me to do a burger, let me throw some roots to my grandmother and do a lamb burger with some med vibes. And they were like, yeah, that's great. That's perfect. Now, I know you uh, you keep it East Coast. I remember at Jam Curly, you had a, a menu that was inspired by 36 Chambers, if I'm not mistaken. And mm -hmm. when you cooked fried chicken with Action Bronson, you rocked the Coogee sweater uh, yeah. in honor of Biggie Smalls. How was that? How was working with Action? That was dope. So um, let me tell you something I've learned about living in L.A., <laughs> <laughs> to live and die in LA? To live and die in LA. Um, the fucking, the weed out here is so good. And the weed on the East Coast is like really bad. And it made me like realize that a lot of my, why a lot of my friends that are stoners on the East Coast are like such fucking head cases and so paranoid. They're still drunk. It's just, yeah. they, they think they're smoking good weed and it's fucked up. So like, <laughs> I had one of my, you know, I had to wear the Kooji because we were filming in Brooklyn and it meant something to me. And I had two gold chains on underneath and I tucked them because as I was going to film my episode, um, 
fuck, who was it? I think it was like either Curtis Blow or Craig Mack. Mm-hmm. Man. Both legends. I can't believe I'm like confusing the two. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Curtis Blow. So I'm going to film my episode and they do two a day and Curtis Blow is like leaving and he's got his two gold chains on. And I was just like, man, like his two gold chains were so much bigger than mine. I was like, I'm not. I tucked my shit. I was like, I ain't going out of this set like that. But I had also like been hitting a flask of barrel cut like Maker's Mark that Cassidy and I had made with Maker's Mark in Kentucky. Yeah, I saw you and went I'd, there to make that. Yeah. I, yeah. I had smoked some like really shitty East Coast weed. So I was like kind of paranoid. And um, they were like, are you okay, Matt? Are you all right? And I was like, yeah, just let me fucking get my shit set up. And so like I was blasted and he was cool as fuck. I'm pretty sure he was blasted at that point too. I think action's always kind of blasted, right? I mean, yeah. it seems like he is. One of the... One of the funniest things was we're both blasted. His wine dude is fucked up. But then Layla Ali is on there and she's like promoting a healthy cookbook and she's like normal and sober. Yeah. And I just felt like weird because I was like, we're all fucked up. Like there's this circus of fucked up people right now on this set. And she's just like the only like normal, healthy, sober, professional person around. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but, um, I remember, I love that you have actions, wine person. there pushing like pet nat. <laughs> like this is oh. the most unlikely thing to be drinking right now. <laughs> we were drinking some really cool stuff that they didn't even talk about. Um, but, but there was a really cool moment when he, we were doing some cooking demo stuff together and he realized like, you know, in his ear, like one of the producers like, okay, action, like it's time to, go over here now and like interact with these guys and we'll come back to this later. And he just looked at me and he was like, hit that flask. I got to go, <laughs> you know? And, nice. and, uh, you know, he hit the flask with me. Uh, it was funny. They told me he didn't like whiskey, but he was hit. Yeah. I didn't think he liked it either. Um, he's just a cool dude. That was like really cool experience. I mean, he worked back me. in the house for a while, right? I don't know what his professional training is. I do think he was a cook, a professional cook, um, but really just a mad cool guy um, and super fucking chill. And I would love to be able to do his show again one day and actually experience it completely sober as well. Not that I have any regrets, but I also think oh, I took I advantage it. of getting to party, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. That's the age party. thing. But you know what? Most people there, you can probably take, you can feel confident they're doing the same thing. Now, speaking of not being sober in a place with no sober people, can you tell me and us about your experience at, uh, at Burning Man? Because that is amazing. Like, you were basically uh, uh, the chef for like a 120 person, as you call it, a gypsy hospital? Or gyps a gypsy hotel, excuse me, not a hospital. Yeah, yeah. Dude, it was crazy. So I was in Black Rock City, the desert, for like 19 days, which, I mean, is crazy. I can't even begin to tell you how crazy that is. Most people that go to Burning Man go for – it's a seven-day festival, and they usually like the pro burners get in there like yeah. a day late. Because they know they better. And then they a day early. And so yeah, because they know that's how to travel. 
If you go to Burning Man for seven days, you're like fucking burnt, dude. You're fucked up. So being out there for 19 days was crazy. Um, I met so many cool people and made so many cool friends. I got to make breakfast with Susan Sarandon, Sarandon many times. Um, she's fucking rad. I also, uh, she packed some really strong heat in her little kit, if you will. It. I smoked some oh, hash. Yeah. yeah, dude, I smoked some <laughs> hash with Susan Sarandon one night. Nice, and I was dancing with her like fucking like, dude, it was like the 70s. It was crazy. We we're like dancing on this Persian rug in the car in the middle of the desert. And I'm so like, you had one of those luxury tents kind of deal. Um, like the... It wasn't really luxury. It was just people. It wasn't like one of those plug and play things that people talk about. But it was we worked our asses off and we used like desert ingenuity to to create things like plumbing in a certain sense, like so that you could take a shower, but it was like cold fucking shower and, you know, but it was, it was neat, dude. It, we definitely weren't like a corporate bullshit buyout camp by any means, but it was a sophisticated camp. These were people that stayed with us from all around the world. They were veteran burners and they were like, look, you know, it was five grand a tent for the week. All your meals were available. We had a, we had another, we had a big, dining tent we had a living room with a bar and then we had another tent that did uh burlesque shows nightly with like a piano and this crazy dude that would just be like uh basically like just be freestyling like singing and poetry and he was just like this creepy grim dude and then chicks would be dancing it was just like this weird <laughs> fucked up trippy shit Dude, but then you know it's Burning Man, so anybody can come. It wasn't like right. just for the people that stayed with us. Like, so yeah. people, the whole point was to create like a rad uh, environment so that guests from all over the camp would come and they would hang out in your living room or go to your burlesque show, and so you get to meet more people as well. That's fucking awesome. And I think <laughs> from a culinary point of view, uh. We were pushing the envelope on pumping out some really good meals. I had like uh, probably 10 gallons of kimchi fermenting on the roof of my kitchen in the middle of the desert. That was fun. There's an amazing pic of you slinging two baby pigs over oh, yeah. each, your, each arm. I did a, I did <laughs> a feast. Rolling. We did this feast. Um, it was a Friday night. It was a big feast. It was four suckling pigs. Um, I mean, we had sous vide whole ducks. We had fucking escargot. We had frog's legs. We had all this crazy shit. And that night, everybody ate some shrooms before dinner. And then, and myself included. And then after dinner, dropped acid. And there was a 10,000 person uh, procession line, like for a reburning of the ashes of Timothy Leary. Holy shit. Susan Sarandon was like one of five people, like one of five personal friends of Timothy Leary that received his ashes. And so she brought his ashes. When did he die? I think, didn't he die? Timothy Leary? Like the I, I father of LSD? When did Sorry, Timothy Leary he, die? Didn't he die in like the 70s or the 80s? Okay, so he's been dead for a while. Because he's like the, you know, he was like the, the, oh, okay, so it looks like he died in 96. 
Yeah. Are you Googling it? I did. Also, what are what are what are bending seeds? Um, I don't know. I think they're those <laughs> yellow things. That sounds insane. So you were out there for 19 days in the desert. Yeah, I think that. Um, and then it takes like a month to kind of get your head back acclimated. Yeah. Yeah, but you do. I don't know. You do kind of look at the. I don't think I ever need to go again. I think being there that long. Did what Dude, it was supposed not. to do. It like shifted my mentality and opened up my mind to really reanalyze and repurpose everything and kind of like really take a hard stare in the mirror and understand the bullshit games that you get involved in in society and how to like, you know, either go, okay, that's part of strategy of life. And these are, this is dead weight that I can just shed from a, you know, an egotistical point of view, so to speak. So it's, it's an interesting place, man. Yeah, it, it. I I have always been sort of apprehensive about going there, thinking maybe I might not, uh, might not come back, uh, but that would be fine. <laughs> but um, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of conclude things the only way that I really knew how. Uh, I had started off kind of talking about fried chicken with you, and then I uh, I want to talk about you teaching Stone Cold Steve Austin how to fry chicken out of a 55 uh, gallon uh, barrel, right? Yeah, that was fucking. <laughs> what the fuck dope. was that? Where'd that come from? That's so random. I know it was. Uh... Look, man, you know I learned something from Three Six Mafia years ago. Yeah, yeah. And they were talking about hip hop. They were being, they were interviewed about hip hop, how it's constantly changing, and how do they feel about the newcomers, et cetera. And they were like, yo, like it's our duty as OGs to keep up with it all. That's why it's called hip hop. You gotta hop on what's hip. And so I always thought, hey, that's smart. And so the reason why I rode the burger title wave when I did was because I knew I had the opportunity to. And when we opened up Cell City Fried Chicken, it was in the midst of a big fried chicken title wave. And I rode that fucker hard, right? Like I got to fried chicken with Action Bronson. I got to fried chicken with Stone Cold Steve Austin. And you know what I'm saying? People love fried chicken. I've got so many dope fried chicken recipes up my sleeve throughout my life. And so I do it when I get the chance to. And it's got it's given me some really cool opportunities. And so for the Stone Cold Steve Austin show, the whole idea of that show was that we were out on Carmen Ranch in the middle of the desert. This is like this massive territory that they film like a lot of the Western movies that you've seen dating back to like the classic Westerns with Clint Eastwood. It's so massive that you can just like, it's like when people talk about going out to the desert and shooting guns in California, this is the type of place you do it. So obviously on that same episode, they had Rob Riggle and they were firing off. He's a ex Marine. They were driving a tank. They were firing off like assault rifles. You know what I mean? So they probably thought <laughs> yeah. like, where can we go and like fire off this shit? And then like, have a meal, right? Because they always want to have like a meal on this episode, so to speak. Yeah, and so yeah. we got linked up and talked about, you know, rigging up some country shit, like frying chicken out of an oil drum in the middle of the desert. And, you know, so when we got to that point, I was like, well, we should be doing whole chicken on the bone for that. And, you know, I'll bring my wash tubs and I'll show them how to dredge and marinate and do it all like like, you know, just some weird Wild West shit, you know? And it was like super, it was just for TV, but it was like super fun. And because it was a new show, they didn't really 
like have all their shit together. Like they were, I mean, they were awesome to work with, but like I had to build that kitchen outside. I remember one of the craziest things I had to do was like, I took an empty box and I like triple lined it with like foil. And then I like rigged the top of it out of foil so that I could use it to like rest chicken in the hot sun. Like it was like a hundred foiled it out and then I put it in the sun so that it was hot as fuck. And I was like, we need a place to rest our chicken, but it's got to keep it hot. I don't want to serve cold chicken, even though this is for production, I want them to get the food fresh, you know? And so there was just a lot of funny shit behind the scenes of trying to rig out a kitchen to execute that menu. Um, Cause I think we did country gravy or we did like a mushroom gravy and we did like potato gratin and we did some accoutrements, you know, some good classic country sides. And it was fun, and dude, Stone Cold was awesome. Rob Riggle was awesome. Stone <laughs> Did he Cold crush it into Coors Lights or what, dude? Um, they were drinking Stone Cold's beers. He has his own beers. He did a collaboration beer with a California brewery. I can't remember the name of it, but I feel like it'd be something that Rogue would do. <laughs> no, yeah, West Coast, West, right? It could have been Rogue or, but dude, like a legitimate. Like craft brewer, or stone and it was or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It's. It's good. Um, I was blasted off whiskey, bro. I was. I mean, like when I watched that, I was like, "Holy shit, dude! You couldn't even tell." <laughs> That's great because sometimes you really can tell when you're really fucked up, but then other times you think everybody else notices, but it's really only you because you know yourself that well. It's weird watching yourself get fucked up on camera, as you know. It can go either yeah. way. It can be, like, amazing, and then sometimes you're like, Joe, shut the fuck up, dude. <laughs> stop talking. I'm like, please stop talking. <laughs> yeah, we're, um, we're in the same boat. I mean, yeah. I, I think that, uh, I don't know, a, a couple of drinks to loosen up for the camera is fun. Um, sometimes you want to party. Like, I brought my boy Angel. So my boy Angel, he's been with me for a few years. He's a young cook that started as a dishwasher. And then he was he went from Peru over to South City when I needed to put somebody in there that I could trust and be a strong cook to set the example and set the standard. And he answered the phone when the production company called. And he was like so excited to find out that Stone Cold wanted to like have this thing happen. And I was like, I got to bring yeah. Angel. You know what I mean? I like <laughs> I, I brought yeah, Angel yeah. and we stayed up there for a couple of days and we were just getting fucked up and having fun and like going to fucking dive bars at night. And like, I remember this hotel we stayed in, like we broke into like this event space in this hotel, dude. And they had had like a bot mitzvah in there. So there was like all this <laughs> leftover bot mitzvah shit, like basketball yeah. games and like laser tag. Just weird <laughs> shit, dude. We were just fucking trash in the place. You know what I mean? Like just being assholes. Yeah. But like yeah. we fucking partied, dude. We were like, we're going up to Carmen Ranch to fucking fry chicken with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Like, we're not Hell yeah. here to be serious at all. Like, we'll get our no. shit done, but we are gonna fucking party. Yeah, we're not going to meet up with Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> we're going to meet up with Stone Fucking Cold yeah. Steve Fucking Austin. And he uh, what's up? He's the man, dude. Really nice guy. Yeah, obviously. And he came <laughs> into the restaurant too. He came by the restaurant, nice. he came by Peru one day for lunch. He brought that dude, JR, that old dude, you know that old dude? He's like... From Dallas? Yeah. Yeah. No. That, 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 I'll tell you what, Stone Cold Steve Austin can eat. 
Kenny, that yeah. doesn't, doesn't surprise me at all. He eats like a whole meal, and then he's like, yeah. cool, can we have that all over again, but just the protein yeah. this time? I'm on a 10,000 calorie or 11,000 calorie a day regimen because I burned 13,000 calories yeah. being me. That's how he rolls, man. Uh, I want to thank Chef Sammy Monsoor for being here. He is not only the owner of Prue and Popper, excuse me, Prue and Proper and South City Fried Chicken, but also a TV personality, an apron model, which I didn't actually bother you about. I thought about doing it, but then I didn't go there. Uh, he's the author of the American Burger Revival, which is available on Amazon, if you want to check that out. Uh, I didn't even really scratch the surface of the things he's done today. You can check out his website at samuelmonsour.com, S-A-M-U-E-L-M-O-N-S-O-U-R.com. And you can really see, <laughs> then you'll have more questions for him. Uh, and also, I think, look for him for spending 19 days at the next gathering of the Juggalos, uh, whenever that happens, <laughs> as the, uh, the head chef for that. Isn't that right? Absolutely. I'll be there. <laughs> He's a Juggalo at heart. I can tell. <laughs> this guy, 100% Juggalo. I don't even know what a no juggalo question. is. I gotta Google what is it. a juggalo? Well, there's actually a song by ICP called What is a Juggalo? I'm not a juggalo, but if you want to find out, I'm Joe Riccio. This is the Food Coma Podcast. How dare you?